In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The miracle of our Lord, which we did not examine last Sunday, but also the miracle which he works in today's Gospel. It's a little foreshadowing of his greatest miracle, his own resurrection from the dead, the crown and seal of our redemption. We see him coming into the, the little town of Naim with disciples, followed by a large crowd. And who meets him there? A widow and the body of her dead young son, who's just died, being carried on a bier, and a sizable portion of the town's inhabitants accompanying them. Touched with pity, he touches the bier, resulting in the young man's resurrection from the dead. There are multiple lessons to be taken from this miracle. This resurrection, first of all, it is not asked of him, as were most of the other supernatural favors which he performed, notably the healing of the centurion's servant. Our Lord also wanted the knowledge of this miracle to be spread far and wide, that is why he did it in such a place in a time that there were many witnesses, including his own disciples. He wanted it to be known by all that he has the power to bring the dead back to life. It's not so much by the words of our Lord, it's by his works, his actions, that we are convinced of his divinity. He began his public ministry, as you know, with Miracles slightly lesser than this one, such as bringing back to health those who suffered physically from illnesses. In this instance, though, he raises a man who has crossed that line, who has actually died, back to life. We thus see that he will to increase faith in his divinity by gradual increments, because this is most suited to our human nature. We who have such a hard time doing anything all at once. This scene from the life of our Lord always, also carries a warning for all of us, notably in what is signified in the body of the dead young man. Even though his body is a lifeless symbol, his, his lifeless body, excuse me, his lifeless body is a symbol of the person whose soul is dead in mortal sin. For even though the soul is dead in mortal sin, the body may be very much alive with an earthly, temporal life. We know that this life is bound to come to an end one day. But our Lord's merciful approach and resurrection of this dead young man is proof that he both desires and has the power to resurrect us from the death of sin to eternal life, every time our repentance is sincere. How is it that souls so often find themselves in need of this resurrection, this resurrection back to the life of grace? There's a hint contained in today's epistle. St. Paul tells us to do the good while there is still time to do so. Contained in this admonition, it is, is a subtle but certain warning 
against that bad old habit of procrastination, a defect springing from the vice of sloth or sloth, depending on your preference of pronunciation. The vast majority of us are more or less slothful in the face of an effort that doesn't appeal to us. It's a vice usually associated with laziness, a desire to avoid all exertion. What exactly are we talking about with sloth? It's a vice that has three degrees, each one becoming progressively more severe. The first degree is when we take up our tasks reluctantly without a real desire to work and to work hard and with indifference. Work such as this is usually only accompanied by poor results. The second degree refers to those individuals commonly referred to by such terms as sluggards, people who don't pull their weight. A sluggard is a man who does not absolutely refuse to work, but postpones and delays it indefinitely. But someone who is truly and thoroughly lazy, however, wants to do nothing which might be in the least bit troublesome, and has a sense of revulsion for all real work, whether mental or physical. This vice of sloth affects our, both our spiritual life and our material, temporal duties, causes us to say our prayers in a hurry, with little devotion, and then eventually we may start omitting them altogether. So let us try to counter this natural laziness by putting things back into their proper perspective, that God made man for work. Reflect a moment on our first parents in the Garden of Eden. The book of Genesis tells us that the Lord placed Adam in the garden for a purpose, seeing to its proper upkeep, not just laying by the Euphrates all day long and eating the fruit that was permitted, it's true that since the fall of Adam and Eve, labor has taken on the quality of being burdensome. Nevertheless, it's a mistake to think that God's original plan for man was no more than a life of idleness and leisure. No, God meant for us to make productive use of our time from the very beginning of creation. It's not a question of activism, of abandoning our time for legitimate, necessary prayers, or recreation, or rest, for a flurry of feverish activity which gradually kills the life of the soul and estranges us from our loved ones. No, it's not so much a question of trying to increase the quantity as the quality of what we do. To work with a greater and greater love we're all told to be diligent. Think about the Latin root of this word, diligere. It doesn't mean to work really fast. It means to love. This is the way of the saints. If we make the effort to do everything, even the little things, with great love, well then, as St. Therese teaches us, we can be assured that God will take care of the quantity. 
The lives of the saints are, of course, the best example of the fact that God's grace can counter the effects of original sin and give us an enthusiastic zeal for exerting ourselves for God and for his greater glory. And a particularly wonderful example of this truth, the life of a saint, a saint who it's unfortunate because it's become almost like a bit of a cliche, we hear his name so often, might make us dismiss his life, his legacy a little bit. This is a grave, would be a grave error on our part. I'm talking, of course, about St. Vincent de Paul, a saint whom all of us would do well to learn more about and to imitate. Consider even just briefly God's blessings on his works. By the time of his death, he was the director of 11 different seminaries. He had organized a series of retreats which served more than 20,000 souls. He founded multiple charitable associations for women and the poor, including the Religious Order of the Daughters of Charity and for men, for priests, the Congregation of the Mission, to spread the faith once again throughout the countryside of France that had been ravaged by the wars of religion, destroying so many Catholic parishes, and leaving the peasants, the poor French Catholic peasants, without the regular teaching of the faith and the sacraments. He also became a chaplain to the convicts of the galley ships, the royal galley ships, men who lived in utter misery, forced to row with heavy oars the ships of the royal fleet until the point of exhaustion, until the point of death. His care for these poor men, this was truly being rooted and founded in charity, as St. Paul exhorts us in today's epistle. Before being loaded onto the galleys, or even or when sickness forced them to disembark, these condemned convicts of the galleys were crammed with chains on their legs into dark, damp dungeons, given only black bread and water, for their sustenance, and they were covered with vermin, with ulcers. But the degradation of their faith and their moral life, if you can believe it, was far worse than their physical misery. St. Vincent de Paul was determined to improve both. Assisted by a priest, he began visiting the galley convicts of Paris, speaking kind words to them, doing them every manner of service, no matter how repulsive. He thus won their hearts, converted many of them, and interested in their behalf several persons who came to visit them. But his greatest love and care was reserved for the poor slaves of the Barbary pirates. These Turks, these Muslim pirates, because St. Vincent de Paul himself had once been a slave himself. He also founded a large number of soup kitchens all over France, feeding 15 to 16,000 hungry bellies every single day, as well as provided shelter to hundreds of homeless and medical care for the sick 
And St. Vincent de Paul was not one of those saints who was known for absolute, the absolute pursuit of holiness and purity from, from his very first, his youngest, most tender age. Yes, he was always pious. Yes, he was always more or less holy. Yes, he was always faithful. But his real conversion occurred at 40 years of age. 40. Seems rather late. But it should give us hope. There's no reason that with God's grace, you cannot follow in the footsteps of a St. Vincent de Paul. He was a saint whose wide scope and the output of of his work has rarely, if ever, been equaled. But the saying, as the saying goes, Rome was not built in a day. The first step is accepting God's grace and having the courage to begin now, without delay. Then we have to continue generously. No one accomplishes as much as this saint unless they're willing to give without measure, without counting the cost. Without this quality, there is no true love of God or neighbor. So th- therefore, today, with the intercession of St. Vincent de Paul, let us recommit this moment to doing the good while there is still time.